Lord, we thank You for this morning. We thank You that Your Word is truth. We ask, God, that You would sanctify us in that truth this morning as we hear what the psalmist has to say and how he views the wicked and how he prays for them in light of who You are and in light of who the psalmist is. And so, Lord, I ask that You would give us ears to hear, a heart to receive, and desire to, to live out the implications of this text of Scripture penned by the psalmist. And I ask this, Lord Jesus, in Your name. Amen. The title of this message as the title of all four messages, this is the fourth one, of Psalm 139, starts out like this. It's, the Lord God made us and knows us intimately. And then the subtitle is, and it's a question, how should we deal with our enemies? Well, let me just briefly go through, fast forward what we talked about last time. We, we dealt with the whole issue of abortion and the nature of the unborn and um, we, we ultimately concluded, I ultimately concluded, that God sees the unborn as persons. He gives them, He, he attributes personhood to them as He does uh, adults. And so uh, today I want to just quickly review this psalm. What has the psalmist been saying uh, from verses uh, number 1 to all the way up to 18? And the psalm is weighty and perplexing. I've said it's perplexing because of God's attributes. We see in, uh, in, in this psalm that God is both uh, uh, all-knowing, and in order to be all-knowing, He must be all-powerful. In order to be all-powerful, He must be all-wise. In order to be all-wise... He is everywhere at all times. And that's what this psalm talks about. And the weightiness of it for me is that it is addressing a God who is not just transcendent, not just immense, but He's addressing this God who is deeply personal. And who can compare... Well, the atheist denies God's existence. The monist denies any distinctions in this world. Polytheists say that there are many gods. Muslims say that there is a God, but too holy so we can't get to know Him really. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come near and became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the embodiment of all wisdom and all knowledge. And it is He who was promised long ago to be Messiah. And now when we come to this psalm, the, the, the mood changes. The psalmist goes from being elated in God's knowledge of Him. It's so wonderful. He just starts worshiping. But now the psalm takes a twist that's kind of weird if you read it, if you've read it. Recall uh, Joe has said that... Um, there are sometimes scriptures in the Bible that really bug him. I think this is one of the scriptures that bug every believer that, that, that has struggled with what this text is saying this morning. Let's read it. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I want to try to answer three questions this morning concerning this text. First of all, what is the nature of this text? What is it? What is an imprecatory prayer? Because that's what it is. 
Secondly, why and when should imprecatory prayers be offered? And lastly, how should the righteous proceed in such prayers? So, first of all, what are they? What is an imprecatory prayer? Well, David goes from delighting in God to all of a sudden this angry outburst of anger toward the enemies of God. And um, I don't know if you've been watching the news, hearing, um, um, you know, watching sports specifically when it comes to uh, the domestic violence problems that are in the NFL and in uh, other uh, sports. It, it just, it's coming to light. And, and, and um, there's a lot of attention being brought to it such that um, the, 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 what was it, uh, last week was Domestic Violence Awareness Week. Um, and, and that's a horrible thing. Whenever the strong are overwhelming and abusing the weak, that's wickedness. Number one. Number two, when it comes to religious talk and us trying to unravel um, what it means that God is love um, in our culture, in, a, in the church a lot, people seem to think that God is a one-dimensional God. That is, God is love, period, end of story. Well, if you're not a one-dimensional being and you're a creature, you are contingent do you think that the God who has always been, who is creator, and has the attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, omnisapience, etc., etc., that this God is going to be one-dimensional? Imprecatory prayers are expressions of hatred. and the desire of the writer to be vindicated. So when we're talking about for someone to vindicate you, or to some, for someone to vindicate me, we're asking somebody more powerful than us, somebody that is in authority, to justify our actions. To make right what somebody is slandering us, that we supposedly have done something wrong and we haven't. And the, and the psalmist is saying, vindicate me, God. But notice his attitude. But, but, but before we go there, I want to point out that in the, in the psalms, there are a lot of imprecatory prayers. And they're usually found in psalms of lament. You know what a lament is? It means you're crying. You're grieved. You're burdened. Because of some unrighteousness. Listen to Psalm 5, 9, and 10. It says this, There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against You. Now, when was the last time you ever prayed that kind of a prayer? How about this one? On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride and on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. That's Psalm 59, 12, and 13. How about Jeremiah? Listen to what Jeremiah says. Moreover, the Lord made it known to me, and I knew it. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised plots against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But, O oh, Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you have I committed my cause. And I could read on. 
What is the focus of these prayers? It is for God, the Lord. Remember what, the, the, what these terms mean? Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is the covenant name for God. The word God has to do with God the Creator. So when the psalmist is uh, entreating God, he has two things in mind. Number one, he is Creator. And number two, he's no longer my enemy. I'm in his family because of his covenant kindness toward me. Keep that in mind when you hear these words. Okay? So when he is crying out to God, because he is God's and he has chosen the way of righteousness, he wants God to execute his judgment, his vengeance. He wants his enemies to be cursed. These are prayers of hatred for the enemies of God. For the enemies of God. And I think as, as we unfold what's going on here, I think you're going to see something that was big time in Jesus. And what was it? The zeal of God. The zeal of God consumed Jesus in such a way that when He goes into the temple and He sees how they have distorted worship, how they're taking advantage of the poor and selling uh, um, sacrifices to the people. He overturns the tables. He makes a whip of cords. And He is indignant. Why is He indignant? Because the zeal of the Lord had consumed Him. Because the holiness of God was His supreme delight. Why is it that we too often get angry at things that have nothing to do with the zeal of God? We know what the answer is. We're intoxicated. We're intoxicated not with the grandeur of who God is, but with the creature. The temporary. And so, to even consider this kind of a prayer is so abhorrent to us. Why? Because we're drinking in the world day after day after day after day and all of a sudden we have no place for the glory of the one true God. But how do we as New Covenant believers deal with this? Really, this is, this is, I've never been here before, so God have mercy on me and God have mercy on you. But, how can we unravel this tension between love and hate? The Old Testament and New Testament requirement of love and the hatred of evil is something that is a tension. The requirement for love, even for our enemies, is first revealed in the book of Moses in Leviticus. Listen to Moses' commandment to love. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Everybody lives their life on some ultimate reference point. The people of God are to look to Him to be ultimate in all of the way that they see all of life, in all their interactions, and in all of their delights. Solomon, in Proverbs 25, 21-22, says this, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, let's face it. God's universal care in light of His love is unmistakable and very clear in Scripture. 
Think about what the psalmist says in 145, 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and His mercies are over all His works. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 5.45 says, talking of God, He says, For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then lastly, what did the Father do? He sent His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why? Because the Father loves the world. The Father loves the lost. That's why. Okay, so we got that? Was that? That's pretty clear, right? Everybody loves to hear that. Okay, but, but now on this side now, I'm telling you, if we don't get this side, we will miss the gospel. We will not understand what we have been rescued from. Because not only is God's universal care and His love unmistakable in Scripture, but so is His demand, universal demand for repentance in light of His wrath. It's all so evident. I mean, why did Jesus have to die on a brutal cross? If you take away wrath, Jesus died for nothing. You have no gospel. Listen to what Paul said. Listen to what Paul said. Um, In his admonition... On Mars Hills. Check this out. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Check out what He's saying. The perfect judge... The one you can't bribe. The one who has conquered death. This judge has a day that's already set. To do what? To give each and every one of us in here our due. You know that mess that happened over there? Tragedy in St. Louis? The shooting of of, of that young man? That's tragic all, all around. Everything, everything about that is, is, is it's just tragic. And people are demanding justice. Believe me, they're going to get their justice. They're going to get their justice. And when it's justice from the, the one true God, it is impartial, it is perfect, it is exact. So judgment is coming, which presupposes that things are not good, that things are bad, that there is something called sin in the world. Now, look at another thing Paul does in Galatians. You guys remember Galatians chapter 1? Paul cons- uh, Paul's pronouncement on heretics and evildoers is to be accursed. Listen to what he says. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now this is an angry letter. But it's not for any stupid reason. His anger is laser beam on target because the gospel is being perverted. The gospel is being perverted. When he's saying, may these people be accursed, it has to do the object of the curse are those who misrepresent, those who pervert, the divinely given gospel through the apostolic preaching. 
Don't miss this. Paul includes himself in that. He's saying, hey, look, God has spoken through me, and I got it right. This isn't from me. This is from God. And if you don't listen to what I've written, you're damned. Oh, and by the way, if I tell you something different than what I've already brought here, I'm damned too. You see the primacy of the divinely given word? Where the human being is to submit to it? Now, anathema is the term accursed. It also means this. It is that which is specifically devoted to God for destruction. You know, in the Old Testament, you have things devoted to God in the temple. You know, all of the, the furniture in the temple and you've got the tabernacle. All of these things, they're devoted to God for worship. Well, those who misrepresent Him, according to Paul, those who pervert His truth, are devoted specifically for destruction. Wow. Why is he so harsh? Because Christ's glory and people's eternal salvation is jeopardized when the gospel truth is being perverted. What's an example of a perversion of the gospel? Mormonism. That's a clear example. Says all the right lingo means completely different, completely different from historic Christian doctrine. The person of God, the work of Christ, salvation by grace, etc., etc., etc. What about Jesus? Surely he's a lot kinder than Paul, right? Guys, have you guys have you guys read the Gospels lately? Listen, listen to what Jesus does here in Matthew 11. He pronounces judgment. He pronounces judgment on Chorazin and Capernaum. Listen to what he says. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you... They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus does a couple of things here. He, denounce, he, he denounces them and he pronounces a woe. When he's denouncing them, that term in Greek has to do with Jesus being justifiably indignant with those who saw the miracles and yet they did not repent. They, in fact, were worthy of blame because of their hardness of heart. And when, and when Jesus pronounces this woe, it's like an interjection denoting pain, uh, 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 um, uh, or displeasure, it's specifically toward these cities mentioned. Jesus is indignant. Why? Because the zeal of God had consumed him. That's why. He's not being sinful and being indignant. See, our problem is this. This is our problem. Most of the time when we get angry, we sin. Because it's not the zeal of the Lord that is being desecrated and thus we are responding. Now, usually it's a personal insult to us. Somebody doesn't treat us the way we should be treated or the way we think we should be treated. And so we, t we are quick to take offense. And then with our mouths, we curse. Right? Don't we? Yeah, we do. So Jesus demonstrates both indignation and pronounces woe on those who reject His message and His person. Because in the context, John the Baptist was in jail and he wanted to know, Jesus, are you the Messiah or not? And he goes, 
And then he went and did his works and said, hey, go tell John, by the way, you know, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and blessed is he who does not take offense with me. But there's also in the New Testament the cry of the martyrs. The martyrs are crying out for God to vindicate them. And this cry is from heaven. This is stunning to me. This stunned me. Listen to this. It's Revelation 6, 9 through 10. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God. You see the, the basis of why their lives were taken? Because of God's Word. And because of the testimony which they had maintained, their lives. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That should send chills up your spine. The martyrs rejoice at the punishment of the wicked. I'm not going to read that. The point is this. Imprecatory prayers, prayers of hatred, are always grounded on not sinful attitudes, but in an attitude that is intoxicated with God, with His glory, with His being, and he has seen that the creature is desecrating all things God. And then there comes a point where it's like, okay, it's time, Lord. This has got to stop. This has got to stop. And that's the attitude the psalmist is praying in. The supremacy of God and His name is central for the psalmist here. It's central to him. So with this understanding, I think now we can proceed into this psalm. The psalmist, as one commentator has said, is intoxicated with God's character and with God's name. And thus the psalmist is not indiscriminate with his hatred of what is wrong. C.S. Lewis said this, that the cry of the psalmists might be explained because they took right and wrong more seriously. We are a very promiscuous culture, aren't we? We've all been affected by it. I have been. Lewis, again, was of the opinion that the imprecatory prayers remind us of the reality of evil and the hope of restoration. And yet their ferocity is a reminder that in this world there's such a thing as wickedness and that it is hateful toward God. Now, look, this text acknowledges the problem of evil. What's the number one reason why people say they don't believe in the God of the Bible? Problem of evil, right? It's only the God of the Bible that has a solution for it and you can make any sense out of it. The atheist denies that there's any such God so that if you die, that's it. Tough luck. Too bad. The monist, the, 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 the pantheist, essentially says it's all an illusion. Well, that's really satisfying, isn't it? You know? But the Christian says it's real. It's not our fault. We don't understand it all, but God has provided a, 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 a remedy for it, and it's His Son. So for you, for you to reject the serum of the Son, it's on you. I don't want to hear it anymore. And I say that not in an unfeeling way. I, like you, have experienced a lot of different kinds of pains in my life. And I'm not going to go into them. But the reason I say this is because people so flippantly say, oh, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because there's so much evil in the world, blah, 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 without really thinking it through. Isn't that our problem? We, we don't tend to really think through things. Why? Because we emotionally, and it is an emotionally charged issue, we object. But then when we start trying to, let, let's understand it, now people aren't patient enough 
to follow the logic. That ought not be. So, of what should Christians beware? Having said all of this, what do we need to be aware of? What do we need to be careful of that we don't fall into? Well, we need to be careful that we don't fall into or come under God's judgment. <laughs> that our attitudes are not selfish. That, uh, that there isn't judgmentalism coming from us. Or a personal vindictive attitude. You've got to be very careful. Uh, I think a year ago, yeah, it was a year ago, I had one such experience. Um, an individual um, really crossed the line, uh, spoke to somebody else, and uh, pretty much cursed me. And then this individual came to me and uh, said to me what he said to me. And my blood started boiling over. I felt murderous feelings. You ever feel murderous feelings? That's my wife. <laughs> you ever feel so angry that your body starts shaking? Can I see a response? Okay, good. There are some people here who have been so angry their bodies are reacting. Well, I was like that. And I called Joe. I called pa Pastor Joe. And I told him what was going on. And um, he... Um, he helped me through it, and we prayed. We prayed for this person. And, um, and, I, and I'm glad. I'm really glad because the wrath of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. In James, it talks about that. And so the wisdom from above is, first of all, what? It's peaceable, right? Full of good fruits, etc. So it's really important that we as Christians... Watch our motives. But also, got to ask this question. Well, how can we practically use this psalm in our prayer life? Uh, and here's how. You ever feel frustrated? Okay. You ever feel angry? Have you ever felt spite? Okay, well, you need to... We use this to bring it under subjection to God's authority. It is a way of not suppressing that. And you don't spew your stuff to everybody around you. You go to God. I'm not saying you can't talk to a discriminate individual. It's not what I'm saying. But for the most part, I find it most fruitful to run to God and to pour my heart out before Him when it comes to issues like this. And what is it that we're actually crying out for? We're actually crying out for, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm going uh, to, as I was finishing this psalm, I realized the pattern in this text, at least, is the Lord's Prayer. I was stunned. And I'm going to show you later, okay, real quickly. But anyway, so now we come to the question, why and when should imprecatory prayers be offered? Okay, well, let's... Verse 19 says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now, I've got to tell you, every time I read that text, I feel a little uncomfortable. Because in my mind, I'm always thinking about well, Jesus. You told me to turn the other cheek. Jesus, you said to love your enemies. Yeah, that's true. But what did I say earlier about God? He's not what? He's not one-dimensional. God is not just love. He is completely love. God is not just merciful. He is fully merciful. God is not just holy. He is fully holy. God is not just all-knowing. He is fully all-knowing. Understand? fact is, there is a time to hate what God hates. In the Psalms, love for the enemy a lot of times 
has been pursued by the psalmist, but the enemy, the enemy rejects it. Listen to these um, examples. They requite me evil for good. When they were sick, I wore sackcloth. In other words, he's praying for him. He's fasting for him. That's Psalm 35, 12 through 13. Listen to this one. In return for my love, they accuse me. Even as I make prayer for them, so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. It's not as if the psalmist is a bloodthirsty you know, individual who just wants to be recklessly vengeful and hateful. Uh, completely and totally the opposite. Now in David's life, we see some recklessness. We see some really, really bad signs of a heart. Boy, if he's a man after God's own heart, thank God... He was, because it, had he not been a man after God's own heart, you know, he may have been worse than, what's his face, um, Nebuchadnezzar. Or, or No, I'm, seriously, if you think about it, if it wasn't for the grace and mercy of God on our lives, we would be pretty horrible human beings. Some of us more than others, and I'd probably be right up there. So there comes a time, in other words, there comes a time that because God's name is being misused, and we're going to get into that in a little bit, it may be time to offer a prayer of imprecation. Think that's relevant today? Who are the wicked? Talking about the wicked. Who who are the wicked? They're destructive. They scheme. They're rebellious. They're bloodthirsty. In other words, they have no regard for life, no regard for justice, and no regard for righteousness. They're God haters. And I'll tell you what, before you were a Christian, so were you. I said that to somebody, and they, I remember, I forget who it was, but I said, yeah, we were God-haters. And well, I, I didn't, like, hate God. It's like, you, you, you're just thinking in one way. A God-hater is somebody who is opposed to him, his enemy, right? Who refuses to submit to Christ. Because what does hate do? It separates. It divides. It keeps at a distance. What does love do? It draws in. It nurtures. You know what I'm saying? Who are the wicked? They are men of bloodshed who hate the blameless, Proverbs 29.10 says. But the upright are concerned for his life. In other words, men of bloodshed hate those who are God's. But those who are God's love the people of God. So, your enemies take your name in vain. Let's look at this. The name of God in light of Scripture is massive because everything begins and ends with God. In Genesis chapter 1, God is not argued for, He is assumed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Need more water, please? Okay? So God is assumed. Well, the God of the Bible, in order to understand the, 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 the psalmist's zeal for God's name, we need to go to the Ten Commandments. We need to go to the Decalogue to understand its meaning in light of the person of who God is. So if you want, you can go to Exodus 20. Thank you. Or you can just um, listen to what I uh, read. The first commandment says this. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Again, capital L-O-R-D in God. You hear that? I am the Lord your God. God wants to continually remind us of who He is and the rescue He has provided before He says, now live this way. Okay? He rescues, and then He says, now live this way. And everybody has a code. Well, the code that God gives to those who He has rescued, those whom He has elected, is very specific. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
So here, the Creator, the covenant-keeping God, the One who through signs and wonders overthrew the then-known world's superpower, Egypt, He's saying, hey, I have demands on you, and these demands are absolute loyalty. Absolute loyalty. Which means that your life is to be consecrated for His purposes and for His design. Israel's identity was engulfed with the worship and adoration of the one true God. There's no place for here polytheism, the belief in the worship of many gods. There actually aren't any gods. An idol is nothing, and we're going to get into that, but the, the, the land of Egypt was filled with the worship of many different gods. And God overthrew all those objects of worship. Ruthlessly overthrew it. So that's the first commandment. second one is this. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this prohibition was first to distinguish Israel from the surrounding nations who often used idols in their religious practices. Now, what's an idol? Idols are physical representations of the deity. But the question is this, to the Israelite, if no person could see the face of God and live, right? No man shall see me and live. Then how could anyone make an accurate representation of his likeness? That's a rhetorical question. You can't do it. So why are you going to try Moreover, idols are static. They don't feel and they are not responsive, unlike the God of Israel. Listen to what Isaiah says of idols. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. We, we may laugh, but don't, just don't, get too, don't get too excited here. Yahweh's affection toward Israel is obvious. He is not a God who can't hear or can't or even can't feel when his people are suffering. He does and he can. Why? Because he's the one true God who is there. The gods of the nations could do no such thing. And so God is just saying, don't waste your time here, people. Don't waste your time here. Secondly, idols are not just physical representations, but they are used as a means of manipulating God. As if you could, right? But that's what the worshiper did. A lot of times, idols were fashioned and they were bathed. People would clean, you know, bathe their idols, etc. Um, and and, and what's, what's interesting here is that um, the, the owner of an idol had the final say as to what the God was going to do for the owner. Um... One scholar has written this way, to fashion an idol is to attempt to reduce God to manageable proportions and to assume that God is susceptible to the control of the worshiper. But that is an alien thought to the God of the Bible, period. You can't manipulate God. You can't tell Him what to do. You can cry out to Him. And, and why is that? This should be simple, but I'm going to reiterate it. The reason you can't is because you're not ultimate. God is. Right? I'm not ultimate. God is. And so when I come to God, I come with an attitude of realizing 
You're the creator and I'm the creature. It really humbles you, but in a good way. It's awesome that you could come to him. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, the, the, the second commandment regulates physical and visual representations of God. This third commandment regulates verbal representations. In other words, there's a limit to what you can say. And if God hasn't said it, you better shut up. That's simple enough, isn't it? I better be very careful that I am not saying this is what God has said when He hasn't said it. You know, think about it. People think for me to say, God damn something is taking the, the name of the Lord God in vain. It may be, but that's nothing compared to saying God has said this and He hasn't. Thank you. Did you do you understand? This is way, way more grave of, of an issue. And so we as believers, He has revealed Himself in this book down through the history. Let us take care how we mine and mind this Word. How we study, how we read, and how we apply. When God's name is being used in vain, it's being misused. Because the Lord, Yahweh, is being associated with something that is false or something that has disastrous purposes. Do you know that that's exactly what false doctrine produces? It misrepresents God, and the hearers and those who believe it are damned. Do you realize that? Do you, do you, do, are you hearing me? His name reveals His identity. His name reveals His character. And there are many different names that are revealed to us in the Scriptures. But to say that God is one way and He's not, do you think it bothers Him? Yeah, it bothers Him. Yeah, I'll answer for it. It really bothers Him, but He doesn't sin when it bothers Him. Imagine if I said this of Joe LeMay. Yeah, Joe LeMay, yeah, I know him, man. I've known him for years. Um, he, he doesn't hate God. You know, he takes the money from the church. I mean, you should see how he's living. Um, you know, he beats his wife, you know, on Wednesdays and Fridays. And, on, you know, on the weekends, the boys get it. Uh, and, you know, in alternate weeks, the girls get it. And I really meant it. Do you think that he wouldn't be upset me slandering him and me saying all these lies about him? Do you, he would be outraged. Why? Because his name is being smeared. Why? Because Joe LeMay, when you say the name Joe LeMay, there's a history there. There's a person there. There's character there. And if I'm misrepresenting, you think he's going to get angry? Okay, well, he's just a finite creature. He's just a finite creature. What's the psalmist saying here? Psalmist is saying, I hate those who misrepresent you. I can't stand them. They are my enemies. Why? Because they're your enemies, God. The zeal of the Lord consumed him. Got to get moving here. So the psalmist is crying for God to make right what's wrong once and for all. He's asking God to recompense the wicked according to their deeds. Okay? So what manner of hatred is this? It's absolute. It's emphatic. Listen to this. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Yeah. I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. He's essentially saying, I hate them without flaw. I hate them perfectly. 
God's enemies have become His enemies. What is this word hate? In Hebrew, this word is an emotional attitude toward people or things which are opposed, detested, despised, and with which one wishes to have no contact or relationship. Yeah, you think? It is the opposite of love that draws and unites. Hate divides and separates. It keeps things at a distance. Well, what does God hate? He hates idolatry. When people are worshiping other gods that are no gods at all but demons. God hates people also. What? Yeah, He does. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Well, how did God hate? Was He sinful in hating them? No. And whenever we hear that, that's what we filter in. We, we do that. I know we do that. God, hate, God hated Esau. Well, what was it about Esau that he hated? He didn't treasure the birthright. He didn't treasure that which was precious to God. Jacob did. He was a rascal, but he did. Teenagers. Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, they love it when somebody your age, you're surrounded by your friends, your culture that's saying all things go the opposite of God, and you say, no, because you love Him. That is dear to the Lord. That's dear to the Lord. Don't forget that. Men hate men, don't they? But hate is acceptable to God among men when? When it is the aversion and departure from evil. That pleases the Lord. That's what the psalmist is declaring here. The hate the psalmist is declaring here pleases the Lord. Why? Because God's people are called to hate what is evil and cling to what is what? Yes. Well, who is good? Jesus said, there is none good but God. When and why should imprecatory prayers be offered? Real quickly, when God's name is being misused. When the misrepresentation of his being and the perversion of his purposes is being paraded. And here the psalmist is asking God to recompense the wicked for his namesake. But this attitude, don't miss this, this attitude is one of submission to this amazing God who knows him intimately and loves him. And lastly, the last question is, how should the righteous proceed in such prayers? How do, how do we do this? Well, I think there's two big things here. We must... Do it humbly, and we must ask God to recompense us also according to our deeds. Same standard, huh? Yeah. You ever work for somebody? This drives me nuts. You ever work for somebody or been under somebody's authority who has a double standard and is consistently has that double standard? I've got to deal with my sinful nature when that happens. I can't stand that. And any of you who know me know how much I deeply despise that. That's not because I'm of self-righteousness. I think it's just a reflection of the image of God. God's justice is perfect. never tainted. It's throughout. God's authority, same. Us, we muck things up, don't we? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Parents got to be careful not to do that. So, verse 23 reiterates what has already been explained in verses 1 through 4. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So, his rejection of wickedness is grounded in his loyalty to the Lord God. This is not egotistical pride. He knows he sins. He knows he needs God's mercy. He's in touch with reality, man. 
and you and I when we're dealing with anger. And that's for another sermon, by the way. And when we're dealing, really, from the Psalms, it's, it's really powerful. Um, when, we, when we're dealing with our anger, angry emotions, okay, we need to, number one, be able to do at least two things. Number one, call a spade a spade. If that person has done something wrong, it's wrong. Number one. Number two, check your heart. Okay, Lord, where am I? Am, am I proceeding righteously or, or am I crossing the line here? Many years ago, um, I, I was in a situation where um, I was being slandered by family members. It was great. It was awesome. Literally, both sides. And it broke my heart and it tore me up. And I had to deal with my anger. And do you know how I prayed? I kind of prayed like, like this, not totally, but here my prayer was this, Lord, you see everything. Vindicate me. Vindicate me. Vindicate me. And Lord, Lord, deal with me where I need to be dealt with, where I am missing it and I can't see it. That was my prayer. That was my prayer. And you know what? God did. It took years, but He did. At least I think He did. <laughs> oh, there goes this. Okay. So, what's He doing here? He asks God to uncover for Him both His motives and His actions. That's what He's doing. He's saying, Lord, are we cool or are we not cool? He directs his gaze on the God who sees and judges perfectly rather than on getting into it with his adversaries. When I called Joe, instead of getting into it with my adversary, what did I do? No, we directed our prayer, our gaze, our cry to the God who hears and judges perfectly. And so, how do we do this? We proceed humbly, but also we must ask God to recompense us according to our deeds and, and this is exactly what the psalmist is asking God to do for him. Just like he's asking him to do it for the, the wicked person, for the enemy of God, he's asking for God to do it for him. And now the question is this, well, what's this deed? He's praying to God for mercy in order, think about it, to walk in the paths of righteousness. He knows he needs God's help. His prayer life demonstrates, though, that he is righteous. Not sinless, but he is righteous. Why? Because his heart is bent toward God. It's bent toward God, not away from God. Don't fall asleep, I'm almost done. Okay? So, praying to God for mercy in order to walk in the paths of righteousness, this is the mark of the people of God. What does Psalm 1 say? Psalm 1 sets the, 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 the pace for the entire entirety of the psalms blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the lord and in that law he meditates day and night he will be like a tree that's firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season its leaf does not wither whenever he does prospers but not so with the wicked they're like chaff There are two ways. There is the paths of righteousness and then there is the path of destruction. The righteous are on the path of righteousness. The wicked are on the path of destruction. In Proverbs, you have the same thing. You have Lady Wisdom, Dame Folly. you got the wise and you got the fool. In Jesus, what does He say? I am the way. He's the path of righteousness. Right? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 of Matthew, there's two builders. Right? You hear his words, you're the wise builder. It's a rock. You hear his word, don't do it, you're a fool. You're building your life on sand. 
Again, verses 13 to 14 of Matthew 7, there are what? There are two paths. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to everlasting life. Right? This is a theme throughout the Scriptures. And it's wonderful to see it everywhere. So, he is praying for God to lead him in the everlasting way. Now, verse 24, there's the world's way, the hurtful way in me. And also in verse 24, there's God's way, the everlasting way. Opposite ways, one leads to death and destruction, the other leads to life and fellowship with God. Psalm 1-6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Perish. It'll perish. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16-11. Jesus said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. What's the conclusion? What's the conclusion of all of this? Here's the conclusion. This psalm has revealed to us something magnificent. It has revealed to us God's attributes of possessing all knowledge, all power. He is everywhere present. He is all wise. And lastly, it demonstrates God's holiness. Because when he's talking about God's name, it really is dealing with God's holiness. God is holy. In Isaiah 6, what happens? In the throne room. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is filled with His glory. Well, the personal interchange also here. In the trenches of life, the psalmist has this personal relationship with this amazing God who is also near. Also, the psalmist's prayer of imprecation for the wicked coupled with his plea for God to disclose any hurtful way in him. Don't forget this. It is fueled by a zeal for God's renown. The righteous and the wicked both sin, but the former cherishes the glory of God above all things, while the latter utterly despises it. So is there ever a time for prayers of imprecation in light of what's been said? I think so. I I, I really do. But we must emulate the psalmist's humility. And I close with this thought. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And Lord, we thank You that in Your light we see light, that Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And and God, I pray that we would be consumed, that we would be intoxicated with who You are such that your zeal, that the zeal of God would consume us and it would inform the way we live. It would inform the way we pray. And Jesus, no one demonstrated and lived this better than you. For Lord, on the cross, you both demonstrated the love of God and the justice of God, taking upon Yourself the wrath due on each and every one of us who were once Your enemies. 
And so, Lord, I thank You that today is the day of salvation. And as Paul said on the Areopagus, that You have overlooked the ignorance of men. And now You call each and every one of us to repent because You have fixed the day. You have fixed the day where You are going to judge each and every one of us by Your Son. And the fact that You are going to do that, the proof of that is He conquered death. And so, Lord, I ask that You would keep us believers from having twisted views of You that really do take Your name in vain. We really do misrepresent You. Oh, God, please keep us from doing that. And I ask that You would do this, Lord Jesus. For those of us in here that don't know You, You know I don't. So grip our hearts that we would see the wonder of who You are in light of all things created and run to You. Cry out for mercy. Crying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Running into the arms of the Savior who alone is our righteousness, our peace, our joy. And I pray these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. In the name of the One who has always been. In the name of the self-existent God. And I pray that Your purposes, through everything that's taken place in here this morning, Your purposes would prevail in each and every one's life. Amen.